Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode, we have Lisa Tadeo to talk about one of the buzziest books of the year, Three Women. In Three Women, Lisa focuses on just three women's stories. There's Lena, a Midwestern housewife who begins an affair with her high school sweetheart to escape a sexless marriage. Then there's Sloane, a wealthy and beautiful East Coast woman married to a restauranteur who likes to watch her have sex with other people. And then there's Maggie from North Dakota, who had had a sexual relationship with her high school teacher. Now, when he's nominated for Teacher of the Year, she decides to speak out years later, prompting a criminal trial where he is acquitted. Now, these are all true stories and they're real women. And this book, even though you might not think you're like either one of them, it will trigger you in many different ways. It's pretty exciting to read. It's sexy. It makes you feel a bit ill, but it makes you think about your own sexuality and your own desire and how desire pushes us humans to do crazy things. I think the show is going to stir up a lot of feelings and I hope you enjoy it and share it with us afterwards. Here's Lisa. It's my great pleasure to welcome Lisa Tadeo to Lit Up. And she just walked in and it's a crisp, lovely New York day. But of course, the first thing I said is that you've written this book and I feel like I've thrown up a little animal <laughs> after reading it. It's a lovely way of putting it. No, like really. So I don't know if that's a compliment in at all. It is. It Thank just you. affected me so much. And it's obviously reaching so many people, not just women. But, oh, we should say that your book is called Three Women. And before we kind of launch into what it is about, I think by reading the prologue, it will give us a really incredible sense of where you start this really powerful story. 
When my mother was a young woman, a man used to follow her to work every morning and masturbate in step behind her. My mother had only a fifth grade education and a dowry of medium grade linen dish towels, but she was beautiful. It's still the first way I think of to describe her. Her hair was the color of the chocolates you get in the Tyrolean Alps, and she always wore it the same way, short curls piled high. Her skin was not olive like her family's, but something all its own, the light rose of inexpensive gold. Her eyes were sarcastic, flirtatious, brown. She worked as the main cashier at a fruit and vegetable stand in the center of Bologna. This was on the Via San Felice, a long thoroughfare in the fashion district. There were many shoe stores, goldsmiths, perfumeries, tobacconists, and clothing stores for women who did not work. My mother would pass these boutiques on the way to her job. She would look into the windows at the fine leather of the boots and the burnished necklaces. But before she came into this commercial zone, she would have a quiet walk from her apartment down little carless streets and alleys, past the locksmith and the goat butcher, through lonely porticos filled with the high scent of urine and the dark scent of old water pooling in stone. It was through these streets that the man followed her. Where had he first seen her? I imagine it was at the fruit stand. This beautiful woman surrounded by a cornucopia of fresh produce. Plump figs, hills of horse chestnuts, sunny peaches, bright white heads of fennel, green cauliflower, tomatoes on the vine and still dusty from the ground, pyramids of deep purple eggplant, small but glorious strawberries, glistening cherries, wine grapes, persimmons, plus a random selection of grains and breads, taralli, frizzelli, baguettes, some copper pots for sale, bars of cooking chocolate. He was in his 60s, large-nosed and balding, with a white pepper growth across his sunken cheeks. He wore a newsboy cap like all the other old men who walked the streets with their canes on their daily caminata. One day he must have followed her home because on a clear morning in May, my mother walked out the heavy door of her apartment building from darkness into sudden light. In Italy, nearly every apartment house has dark hallways, the lights dimmed and timed to cut costs, the sun blocked by the thick, cool stone walls. And there was this old man she had never seen waiting for her. He smiled and she smiled back. Then she began her walk to work, carrying an inexpensive handbag and wearing a calf-length skirt. Her legs, even in her old age, were absurdly feminine. I could imagine being inside this man's head and seeing my mother's legs and following them. One inheritance of living under the male gaze for centuries is that heterosexual women often look at other women the way a man would. She could sense his presence behind her for many blocks, past the olive cellar and the purveyor of ports and sherries. But he didn't merely follow. At a certain corner, when she turned, she caught a movement out of the side of her eye. The stone streets were naked at that hour, in the toothache of dawn, and she turned to see he had his penis, long, thin, and erect, out of his pants, and that he was rapidly exercising it up and down, with his eyes on her in such a steady manner that it seemed possible that what was happening below his waist was managed by an entirely different brain. She was frightened then, but years after the fact, the fear of that first morning was bleached into sardonic amusement. For the months that followed, he would appear outside her apartment several mornings a week, and eventually he began to accompany her from the stand back to her home as well. 
At the height of their relationship, he was coming twice a day behind her. My mother is dead now, so I can't ask her why she allowed it day after day. I asked my older brother instead why she didn't do something, tell someone. It was Italy, the 1960s. The police officers would have said, ma lascialo perdere, è un povero vecchio, è una meraviglia che ha il cazzo duro a sua età. Leave it alone, he's a poor old man. It's a miracle he can get it up at his age. Thank you so much for reading that, Lisa. Sure. Your book, Three Women, is about three specific women who are not your mother, mm -hmm. although she obviously hovers over the book because we start with her. Mm -hmm. Why was it so important to have her open the book? So, you know, the prologue and opening with my mother came um, fairly late in the process after most of the book had been completed. And I think not. I, I'm, one of the main reasons I put it in was because I had been, you know, these women had been giving of themselves so much to me. And two things were important. One, that I wanted to keep myself out of their stories. Um, I wanted to sort of make their stories speak for themselves. And I didn't want, there was a couple of times where I come in with an opinion, but it's pretty rare because I didn't want to hover over their stories. But when I had finished the book, I looked at what they had given me and how they had sort of just, just you know, shared their most intimate secrets. And to me, it felt like if I weren't sort of putting my own self to some extent holding myself up to the same magnifying glass and the way that I felt like I had inherited my own, you know, the way that I look at things, the way that I felt from men and women, that a lot of those things came from my mother and my not knowing a lot about her and having stories like this that were sort of, you know, in a vacuum and not being able to ask her about them. And the fact that I thought all of the women, their relationships with their mothers were, were very important to the trajectories of their lives. Um, so the reason I put my mother in there was to sort of highlight the mother aspect. You know, everybody talks about daddy issues and I think mommy issues is a lot less used in our lexicon. But for me, it's, it's more, um, it was more of a, of an, it was, it affected me more than my father, I think, although everything obviously <laughs> affects you. But, um, but yeah, so the two reasons were one to highlight mothers and two, to put myself under a, a similar magnify, obviously not at length because I didn't want it to be about me, but I wanted to say here I am too, to some extent, you know, showing myself so that it's not just taking. Two things you also mention in the passage that follows the one you read that you are hyper aware of your father's desire for mm -hmm. your mother. Yeah. And as a child, it's hard to process what that yeah. is. And often it, when we get older, we, you know, you hear friends, we all talk about yeah. that parent relationship and what you learn from it. Mm -hmm. How did that parent dynamic affect you, you think? I have like very early memories of my dad kissing my mother, like on the cheek or on the lips, not often, but he would sort of not do it behind my back, but he wouldn't do it in front of me. And I remember hearing the noise of the kiss like behind my back and being somewhat bothered by it because my mother for me, like I think a lot of 
girls are. I was very like, I wanted her to be mine, you know, maybe that's not, um, but I wanted her to be mine. I wanted to sort of own her in a way. I know that sounds crazy, but when I was a young child and I, you know, it, it went away as I got older, but yeah. So, so my dad's sort of, um, his own, like, you know, taking of my mother in that sense, really it affected me. But what also affected me was that he was so, um, into her. And so, you know, not, I've never saw him like look at other women. Um, maybe I wouldn't have noticed, but I, you know, I, I was, they were just so strongly connected that as I got older, anytime a man that I was seeing said something about another woman that I felt like was, it would piss me off because I was like, my dad didn't do that. So to me, it sort of, it illuminated a kind of path of what I wanted my relationships to look like, which would have been similar to theirs, even though I was a little slightly repulsed by it at the time. I'm having so many flashes of my own experiences, which is what this book does. I'm not going to go into into my own, but (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone's going to need a support group in their (laughs) local city to work through all the things your book brings up. So let's talk about these three women and how you found them and also how long ago you started this project. So I embarked upon this nearly a decade ago. I did not, at the beginning, know what I was doing at all. My editor, he had read a a story that I wrote in New York Magazine, um, which was called The Half-Hooker Economy, and it was launched off of Tiger Woods having that affair with Rachel Yucatel, who was a sort of ambassador to the club world. And so, I mean, just to give you a story... I went and I sort of hung out with all these bottle girls in Vegas and New York and LA. And then I told the story of how it was like somewhat transactional with them and the men that were their clients, how they would like sort of go to Miami and, you know, they, the men would then buy them Christian Lopatans. And it wasn't so much that they were having sex with them. It was that they were like, you know, sort of girlfriends. It wasn't GFE, like girlfriend experience, but it was like, like they were almost paid to hang out with items instead of money. So I was super interested in that. I wrote this story that went from Rachel Yucatel and Tiger into like, I met her and it was, she was really interesting. So when my current book editor, Jofi Ferrari Adler read that piece, he was like, I want you to write a book. And which was really cool and awesome. But I was also like, I, I don't, I didn't, like I didn't, I wanted to write fiction and novels, but I'd never thought that I was going to write like a nonfiction book. Um, so I was terrorized, but also honored. So I moved to Indiana. That was my first sort of like kind of randomly. The Kinsey Institute was near the place that I moved into, but I also had been talking to a doctor who was giving women hormones to lose weight, this like group of women. And I started a discussion group with those women. And so that's where I found Lena, who was the suburban housewife in Indiana, who's the day that I met her, her husband, she had been to a couple's therapist. Her husband had said that he no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth, that the sensation offended him. And the couple's therapist said that was okay, which was insane. And then she had just found her high school boyfriend with whom she had been obsessed for years on Facebook. And they had started 
they, she was about to see him. So it was kind of on the cusp of this major turning point. So the immediacy of Lena's story, the rawness, and the fact that she just wanted someone to talk to and wasn't like, you know, she had no one to talk to. So her isolation and um, and the immediacy of her story and the rawness and the honesty were just unbelievable. And then how did the next two, Maggie and Sloane, come to be? And can you tell us a little about either? So... I wrote most of Lena's story. I had moved from India. I lived in Indiana for a little over a year and a half. Really? Had you yeah. met your husband then? Yes, I had met. He was still my boyfriend, but he um, he actually, because we were running, I was running out of money. I had an, a kind advance. It was really um, generous, but it also, you know, after two years of not, you know, it's it's a little hard to keep, um, to have health insurance. So, um, so he, my now husband started working at a Kmart in Indiana where he had come to like meet me to sort of help out. And it was because he was a photographer and a filmmaker, but you can't really do that in Indiana. He like quit his job in LA. So it was a whole thing. Um, wow. And so he came to Indiana and he got a job in the photo department of the Kmart, which was really cool. Um, cool. I mean, it was fine, but he would take like Christmas photos, you know, like kind of like Joaquin Phoenix and the master like that. Like almost exactly like that. So we moved to Los Angeles because I had found a man there that I was, it was a philosopher who was in a, you know, his wife no longer wanted to sleep with him. I wasn't looking for these stories of like, it was just that I would find people who were A, honest, B, not looking to talk for the sake of hearing themselves talk and three, just willing to let me into their lives in like a weird way. Like, I'm like, I'm going to come move to where you are and sort of just talk to you and hang out with you. So that's, anyway, so I was in LA. I finished writing Lena's story um, and I sent it to my editor. And I remember I was on this street in Santa Monica and he wrote back to me or called me and he said, this is amazing. Just do this a couple of more times. And I was like, oh my God, I have spent three years now. You know, I've found, I've made one story out of that. And so I was horrified again and terrified again. So I eventually left LA because that man didn't really pan out for a variety of reasons. A lot of people didn't pan out for a bunch of reasons, most of which were they wanted to, they were just like scared, you know, because I was saying I would still use real names and I didn't know that I wasn't going to and I didn't want to take the chance that, um, that they would go, I don't want my name used. So I, I found Maggie when I was in this coffee shop in North Dakota and I was like sort of watching these women who I think were like immigrant waitresses during the day and were being trucked off to the local oil fields at night to sort of be prostitutes for the men. And I was really intrigued by that, but I read about Maggie's story in a newspaper. Her trial had just ended and um, she had had an alleged affair with her high school teacher who had gone on to become North Dakota's teacher of the year. And, um, you know, uh, she had, she, she had came forward and said something cause her entire life had sort of been, it was consensual. Defined, defined, by, defined this. by this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he put notes allegedly in her vampire in her, um, sorry, uh, uh, Twilight. Twilight, yeah, um, that was like, you know, is this us, you know, age doesn't, you know, just literally, I mean, imagine like I think of my favorite movie when I was a kid was The Princess Bride. If somebody had said, you know, I am your Wesley when I was like 16, you know, I would have like that 
can, I mean, it's just like, it's unimaginable how like, it's not even the, the sexual aspect of it, but the kind of taking a young woman who felt, um, you know, he felt unseen in the world saying you are seen, you are valuable and intelligent, but then also, you know, inserting himself in this other manner and he started it, you know, I mean, I have to say allegedly because, um, you know, cause it's, but for me, when I read that, I read that there were just these hours of phone calls, uh, after 11 and midnight. And I was like, you're not, nobody is helping someone at that hour. Like you're not sitting there for hours. Um, without calling the police or her parents. So anyway, that was Maggie's story. Um, and then Sloan, Sloan, I, I wanted to find someone. I'd been in two locations there that I was using. And I didn't, you know, I had like multiple other locations and people that um, that I didn't end up using. But, you know, all almost all the locations had been, you know, either middle class or, you know, middle of America, um, I wanted something a little bit more coastal, a little different in feeling. And what I loved about the community that Sloan was in, in, in Newport, Rhode Island, was that in the summer, it's this highly coveted, you know, lovely um, restaurants on the harbor and boats and, you know, politicians and presidents. And um, and then in the winter, it's like everyone sort of just stays inside. They, you know, they just, there's like lots of, you know, it's isolated and it can be, it just can be, uh, difficult. And Sloan and her husband, um, had a restaurant in Newport. So I moved there sort of, um, blindly. And I also had been talking to this young man who was like 19, homosexual and a life coach. And I was like, really taken with him. How can you be a 19-year-old life he coach? He was quite an amazing human wow. being. And he's like, I think now he's like 24, 25. And he's just like, I think he's just driving around the country sort of. I mean, he is, the things he's done so far, he's been in Vanity Fair. I mean, he's been like everywhere. So um, he's also a photographer. Anyway, he's he was, so I, I kind of, I was like, okay, this is, you know, because I still was like, I want a man or I want, you know, I wanted I didn't know that I wanted to do three women. I thought I, I wanted someone to really be different than the other two. Not that the other two were the same, but um, I was looking for something to kind of just give it more um, of a cross-section of America. But I also had like 15 people that I thought I was including. So I didn't, you know, I didn't. Anyway, so Sloan, I heard about her right away. You know, somebody was like, oh, you're writing a book about sex or, you know, at that point I said sex just to like, cause desire is kind of confusing. It's like, what's desire. And so people were like, oh my God, you have to meet Sloan. She is gorgeous. And there's a lot of rumors about her. And the first rumor that I heard was not about, um, the threesomes or which, which were true also. And that her husband liked to watch her, um, have sex with other men in front of him. So it wasn't that it was that someone said to me, she and her husband have sex every day. And the most horrifying thing to these people were not that she quote unquote allowed it, but that she wanted to too. And so it was just, I mean, men didn't feel that way, but for the most of the women I spoke to were like, just because I think we project our own fears right onto other people. So if we are not either a wanted in that way or b want to 
be with someone in that way who we're with, then we go like, oh my God, that's despicable, you know? And so that to me was, so it wasn't just about her, it was about the reaction to her. And so that really intrigued me. And so I wanted to, I knew I wanted her to be in it in some form. So when you started out, you wanted, you thought you wanted to have men's stories in there. You do mention in the book that the men's stories started to blur together and seem to have a sameness about them Mm -hmm. in contrast to the kind of vividness and the Mm -hmm. uh, particularities of each of these women's stories. Mm -hmm. How is men's desire similar? Um, I think that you mean to other men. Yeah. So, you know, I mean... The, one of the things I, I said in the prologue was not so much that I wasn't interested in, in the men per se. It was more that I wasn't interested in when somebody was in control of the object of desire. I was more interested just from my own personal um, feeling that I was interested in when somebody couldn't control their desire or how the person that um, that kind of the person that they loved or wanted was in control. Whereas Sloan's is a little bit different um, than that. I think it's a little bit of both. But with men overall, and I obviously this is not true of all men, but the men who were willing to talk to me, the men who I met, the men who you know I thought were interesting and complex, for the most part, um, they began to just, there was a lack of complexity. Whereas I think one, I think the main reason, and again, I always feel like I need to like, you know, put this sort of precursor in, which is that obviously not all men, I'm not generalizing, but men tend to compartmentalize, you know, more so. It's just, I think it's a biological, um, you know, sort of trait. I don't think it's like they, but I think men are able to go careers in this box. Tennis is in this box. Um, you know, working around the house is in this box. My family is in this box. And then, you know, if I'm having an affair, that's over here in this box and it's totally, it's separate. And I feel like women don't have boxes. They have like giant ovals and there's just a bunch of like things in the ovals that are, they're not. And they're um, overlapping. Yes, overlapping and just like fluid. So if you have the job and you have the boyfriend, then you probably want the, you know, the home, not the, not like it's like a fancy apartment, but, and so for me, the women that I met um, were, that that was like, but all of those three things, the home, the career, and the love was interpolated. And it wasn't like if they had the apartment and the job that they were always thinking about all of the things that they wanted, whereas men were able to, from two to four, think about work and from five to six, you know, talk to their family and from six to eight, maybe, you know, go see a, another person that they were seeing, which I found often and people are like, there's a lot of cheating in your book. And I'm like, there's a lot of cheating in the world. You know, like that's what I found. And not even cheating, but like one of the things I said, I think in my proposal was that, you know, like if you're walking down the street and you need to take a cab somewhere and you've just left the office with a man that you're somewhat attracted to, if you get in that cab with him because you're both going to the same place, there is an aspect of it because it has to be that you are doing it to fulfill some want, right? So I think that, um, you know, I think I'm not saying that's cheating, 
but it's the sort of, you know, I, one of the things I was doing when I was at Kinsey was talking to one of the brilliant researchers there about like a what moment does cheating begin? You know, does it begin at the kiss? Does it begin at the first time someone says something weird? Or, you know, if you're in a relationship and the other person that is in a relationship too, at what point does it turn to that? Because some people will say, oh, sex is the only thing that I, some people will be like, a kiss is it. I mean, there's some people who are like, if if a man sends an untoward email to a female colleague, not even like just the idea of stroking one's ego, you know, that might be the moment if it turns into something. If it doesn't turn into something, I think it can be considered a minor transgression, you know? So that's my that's my sort of feeling about cheating is that it's really, you know, it's out there. And it's a lot. So that's why it's in my book. Also, did you find, not necessarily even with these characters, but that the healthier relationships are where people know where their partner's boundaries are? Yes. I think boundaries are super important and being honest about them and sort of like repeating them. You know, like, because sometimes people, oh, you'll go a year and it's like, well, it doesn't feel like she still really cares about me in the same way. So I can do this. Like, that's a very, that's something I've found very often. Like, specifically with a man, um, you know, a man will sort of be like, oh, and it's the same thing is true of a woman. Because the women that were in that hormone group who ended up, most of them being in my discussion group, were that they had felt like their men weren't, their lovers, husbands, boyfriends, partners weren't not seeing them and they had lost all this weight and they would, and the personal trainer who I quote in the, um, in the book said, you know, you can, I can count it down by the, like, I can tell if she gets five compliments, you know, that that's going to be the thing that pushes her over the edge if her husband has not even noticed that she looks different or better. So, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that it's, it's just, there's a lot. Um, and boundaries are not clearly demarcated on a, you know, revolving, continuous basis. Definitely in terms of Lena. Mm-hmm. The economics of mm-hmm. marriage and mm-hmm. male and female dynamics play a big part. And it also seems to hover over the book mm-hmm. that when women aren't earning or have mm-hmm. no money to leave, if, mm-hmm. there, if there is no way that they could leave their husband and still support themselves and their children, the trapping, the being trapped in that way... Mm-hmm can ruin their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, For Mm -hmm. her, it was, she felt like she couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. And yet she also is in such a um, dysfunctional affair as well. Mm -hmm. I just felt for her so much. How did she come out of it? Um, You know, I think that, uh, you know, I still speak to all three of the women. Um, With Lena, I think... You know, more still, Maggie is doing really well. She's a social worker. It's just completely, it's wonder. I mean, she obviously still is scarred. Um, and I hope that this book doesn't kick up too much of that for her. But um, but she's doing really well. Sloan is, I, I think Sloan has always been doing well. I think she has dips and she has a, a past that's really difficult. But I think she's in charge of her world in a way that a lot of people are not. And Lena is somewhat in the same sort of situation with another man who is not married this time. She is separated from her husband. 
Um, so it, it's not the same because the man is, you know, in her life in a more present way. But there's a lot of chasing. She wants someone to love her um, and see her. And I think that, you know, where she is in Indiana is part of the problem because there's a very traditional sort of situation there. And the men that she's, you know, she's not going into the next big city. She's, you know, in a small town and there's a sort of, you know, it's like all of my friends who are in Tinder or Grinder in like small towns. I'm like, what is it like? I was just talking to somebody the other day who told me that one of his friends was like on Grinder and like near our town in rural Connecticut. And, you know, it, it's like, what is that? Like, he was like, I'd be terrified because like, what kind of a, not that, you know, there's great people, but sort of like the idea of um, beginning a relationship with someone in, in a town in Indiana, it's just, it's so more, much more traditional than, you know, New York, LA, Chicago, any giant city. Um, and so for Lena, I think it's tough to, she's very progressive um, in the way that she feels she should be treated. Um, and very, you know, she is a feminist, even though I don't think she would call herself that. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's so she's still kind of, you know, lost in that way, though. One of the things I always say is that I think she really does a lot for herself in a way. So it can be very tragic, but she's also, someone said to me, I was so impressed at the way she like pulled a babysitter out of a hat, like switched the cars, left her husband, like did all of these things that in the place where she's from are not done. So yes, she suffered, but she suffered at her own hand and with her own agency when it came to Aiden. When it came to her husband, it was like, you know, it's frightening. She didn't know she could get child support. You know, no one told her that. She didn't, she just didn't know how it worked and she couldn't ask anyone because everybody would have said, you can't leave your husband. I hadn't thought about this before because reading the book, it obviously kind of, not to use that word lightly, triggers mm -hmm. things in all of us. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to know that these women, of course, live beyond the book mm -hmm. and that their stories keep going. Mm -hmm. And actually, even though this is a moment of their lives that you've captured or years of it, that they're still evolving too, mm -hmm. especially hearing that Maggie, who's the 16-year-old, yeah. 17-year-old, when she had yeah. this relationship with her teacher, the fact that that could have been the worst part of her yeah. life and now she's, she's grown so much. And she's interested in helping people in the same, who've been in the same place as her, specifically with teachers, with younger women. And it keeps happening in North Dakota. It's kind of like a hotbed. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just sort of like, you know, really in tune with the area, but I also, it's just kind of, it's impressive considering that there's been two men who have been taken, you know, who have been in the public eye about it. So I'm like, for me, I'm like, if I see someone doing something reprehensible. I'm like not going to do, like, I'm going to be really, I'm going to be like, oh my God, you know, like more so afraid of, um, of doing the same thing. So the idea that people keep doing it is shocking to me, but you know. Well, as you said, desire pushes yes. us to do these things yeah. that could seem totally out of character. Yes, totally. Now to Sloane, because mm -hmm. I feel that she is such an interesting character mm -hmm. and she so she meets her husband and they run a restaurant together mm -hmm. and he it seems like he's the one that 
not pushes but wants to watch her having sex with Mm -hmm. other men and that she accommodates his desire but Mm -hmm. she's very confused about where her desire lands in that pool. Yes. How how does it in the end? So, you know, one of the things, and I think I put it... um, in, I think it's not in the the galley, the first proof of the book, but it's in the final one. Um, because one of the things that she said to me um, after, and the thing about Sloan that's been very um, both in, intriguing but also difficult is that she would just keep telling me things in sort of these, like, whereas Lena just came out with everything all the time. And Maggie's story, which um, was accessible to me, you know, on the internet and in, you know, court documents was, I could just ask her about specific things that had definitively been talked about. Um, But with Sloan, there was a lot more sort of, you know, surfing, like to get to the right, um, to get to the right spots. And she was less forthcoming um, than the other women were. So it was difficult. Um, And so with Sloane, one of the things she said to me, because she read her, well, she read the whole book, but she was very happy with it. And I was really happy because I was, you know, very nervous about all of them um, and how they would feel about their book, but the book. But she, um, one of the things she said was, um, you know, everything's great. This is great. I would, you know, can you do a little bit more of this? Because I think that everything she wanted to add was so, was one, true, and two, helped layer it more. And the thing she said about her husband was like, you know, she's like, one of the things that I, I don't think I conveyed enough, but he does a lot for me. He, one, he makes me feel, and that that was in the first proof, he makes me feel more wanted than any, you know, I, I know I am his fantasy. He says it every day. And she's like, you know, maybe, maybe he's, you know, maybe when he fantasizes, it's me and, you know, a woman in a porn, but I know it's me. I know I'm in there. And, um, you know, so, and also he would just come up behind her when she was looking in the mirror and, you know, she would be like, oh God, I need Botox or I need to, you know, not drink at night because I'm not 20 anymore. And her husband would come up behind her and say, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. You always will be. And that's like so, and she said, so, you know, he does all this for me. He does so much. He's such a good father. He's such a good husband. He, so what? He wants me to sleep with other people in front of him. And I don't, you know, sometimes I'm confused about it, but mostly it's okay. So why, you know, I can fucking do this for him is what she said. And, you know, that's a very, um, you know, he doesn't push her to do it, but she knows that he likes it. It's also something he didn't do before he met her. So there's something and, you know, and I think his desire is super interesting. I didn't, you know, talk to him about it because I wanted to, at the point that I'd met Sloan, I was very sure that I wanted it to be very, not to say one-sided, but I wanted it to be women's stories because men, we have heard from them a lot about their desire. You know, I mean, all of the James Salter, who I love and John Updike and Philip Roth, it's all, you know, men's desire. Men want this. Norman Mailer, like the penis is this like thing that must be stated. And if it's, I forgot who said it, but if it's up, it needs to be brought down. Like someone said that. I don't remember who, but I'm. I, it's haunting to me. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It can either stay up or not get up to begin with. And it's not, you know, our responsibility as women or other men to get it down. If it's up. So anyway, so I wanted to stay away from that. However, I think that for him, it's, it's, 
I think it's interesting to, you know, I think he's got an interesting set of feelings about it. So, and what she's basically doing is she's accommodating those, but he also accommodates her. And I think it's a very great marriage. And, you know, but the things that I was focusing on, even though I put the great stuff in there to an extent, was that it's, this is something that she was struggling with. And that's interesting, you know, and it shows the facets of, you know, a human relationship. Well, in any relationship, it is amorphous, isn't yeah, it? totally. And that's why these stories are so compelling, but why we're always interested in talking about mm-hmm. how do you stay faithful, how mm-hmm. do you stay attracted, because mm-hmm. it's like the universal yeah. problem. I know. Because we're not, you know, by biologically, and I always think about this, and, um, you know, men are biologically meant to spread their seed to as many people as possible to increase, you know, the likelihood of of having children and propagating the species. And women are biologically stay at home and manage the child and be attracted to the same man. Like there's a chemical thing that if you have sex with a man or, you know, anyone, but it's, it's more so a man and a woman, um, that the chemicals that their body produces, you will be attracted to that for like up to a week. I think that it's a week. I need to check the, I actually asked someone the other day because I wanted to be sure I was saying it correctly. But, and the idea that if you just, it's kind of like nicotine, if you can go three days without a cigarette, then you are technically no longer biologically addicted, but you are still addicted to the oral fixation. So even if you don't smoke for three days, and even if you don't have sex with the same man after a week, there is that fixation that remains, but I think it remains because the biology kicks it off. So I technically think that women are biologically disadvantaged because of what our sociological impulses and, you know, current way that we live dictates. From reading the book, it seems that people's childhoods have such a huge effect on their the way they desire and who they desire. Coming through this experience, what can you say about that? What you've learned? You know, I think that um, I think that sort of everything is so incremental, and it's not like there's one experience or even seven. I think it's like a thousand little things that happen when you're a kid and when you're like five and six and 15 and like, you know, it definitely ramps up when you like hit puberty and like you start thinking about stuff more, but all this stuff that happened before even puberty, like I, I was one of the things that was kicked up in me and, um, I wrote a story about it recently for, I think it was LUK, but I remember after Lena's story in particular about her, you know, this group rape that happened that when I was like 10 or 11, um, I went to Puerto Rico with my family. My family was, my family, my dad and mom were hovering like helicopter parents before the term was around. Um, they never let me out of their sight. They were super, um, you know, just nervous. And, um, I took a long walk on the beach. They like let me took the, take this long watch, walk on the beach. I brought baby oil and Stephen King's The Stand, which I was reading because I was like a depressed kid. Even though everything was fine, I was depressed. I slathered myself in baby oil because I wanted a tan and I fell asleep on the beach. 
And I woke up with two things. One, the worst sunburn in like, it was like second degree burns. It was bad. And the other thing was that there was this man who was like 40. I don't remember. He was definitely very old to my like 11 year old brain. And he was licking my shoulder. No. Yes. It was insane. And I was, it was shocking. It was a shocking thing. It wasn't like, you know, like I wasn't being actually so violent I know it's really not for an 11 year old it was just and on the beach it was like so you know it's funny because I hate the beach now I don't hate it but and I always before I sort of started writing this book I was like I hate it because it's sandy I'm worried about getting sand on top of sunburns like all of these things but um anyway so this man was licking me and I was like startled awake by the licking and um I was like, oh my God. And he kind of stood there for like, or kneeled there for like, like 30 seconds. It felt like hours. And I didn't know what to do. And then I don't remember what happened next. And that's not to say that I don't think anything happened, but I was sort of like, I blocked out that sort of whatever when he left. I was frightened and I went back to my parents. I did not tell them about it because I was so afraid, one, that they would never let me leave their site again because they were already like that and two that they would think I was like a slut and you know and just the idea of that was so scary and then I had this terrible sunburn and like you know I had like little water blisters all over my body that I would like stick with a pen I don't know that it was self-harm or anything but I definitely felt that the sunburn was sort of this like scar that I deserved because I had taken a walk alone on the beach and you know laid out in a black bikini yeah it's awful I know it's weird interesting as well I know. And almost like the shame you felt yes this totally. is this is what the whole book is about and what we're trying to yeah get off um, yeah. get off of us totally. like how the man's desire yes. that gaze and yes physical licking yes made you into the poor shameful little girl yes Totally. I think it's like all of the experiences like that, both positive and negative, that in our childhood and in our formative years that, you know, make us who we are. And then we sort of like fight to figure out who we are. And, you know, a lot of the things we want and feel are dictated by our biology, sure, but also, you know, the way that we've, our experiences that have shaped us. And then you collide with another human being who has has their their own set. Yeah. Through this period, do you think the couples that have made it, because obviously you were looking for dramatic stories. Yes, yes. Even talking to friends who've known you've been on this journey and Mm -hmm. talking to your partner, have you whittled down the safety kit for trying to have a healthy relationship? For me in general, I think being very experienced Explicit and talking about things often and talking about boundaries like we were talking about before. I think that that's a good thing. But also one of the things, one of the men that featured prominently, he was a, um, he is a psychologist and I think is Robert Sternberg. And he has this theory about relationships that, you know, there's some people have in their minds a love story, that that's the relationship they want. Some people have the business story. Some people have, like, there's all these stories. And it's not so much um, who the person is, but the story that they have and whether or not it conflicts with yours. Like, my husband has the sort of, the it's probably the love story. And I'm more the 
business story. So I'm like, okay, you need to do this. I need to do this. You know, and it's not even about making money or it's just about like, I'm a Capricorn. I'm incredibly, you know, methodical. And I'm like, this has to happen. And I want everything to go the same way every day. And he's like, you know, let's just be happy. And I'm like, I can't be happy unless the, so, and you know, that causes a lot of conflict. So I don't know that, you know, I don't want anyone else, but I do think it would be easier if I had known about these stories, but you can't change who you love, obviously. So, but however, you know, if I were to, you know, do it over, I would probably keep that in mind more, at least with the people I, you know, dated before that, because, you know, it gets tough. Yeah. Dating is a tennis volley, Mm -hmm. which is just as basic as you hit the ball. Yes. They hit the ball. Yes. You hit the ball. Yes. And when you think of it like that, and if you have to wait, if someone's not thinking about yes. you and wanting to get in touch with you, yes. that is your sign. And as yes. painful as it is, and it's what, you know, two of Maggie and Lena have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I guess with experience, you understand that. Yeah. And you, That's ha- a brilliant and you let it go. Yeah. But... Yeah. But yeah, if you're constantly hitting the ball and there's no one like hitting it back, it's like, that's really brilliant. I love that. But yeah, that's it. And something that struck me about Maggie too, which is I think the entire point about minors not being taken advantage of by Mm -hmm. older people is Mm -hmm. that as a 16-year-old, you do not have the experience Mm -mm. to know that when a man says he loves you Mm -hmm. because he wants to sleep with you, Mm -hmm. that the next day... He He will not mean that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the sadness in Mm -hmm. when young people don't get a chance to develop themselves or even have that experience with someone their own age and not be manipulated in that way. Because plenty of people will manipulate you who are your peers, let alone someone who's in a position of power. Power, Totally. And you know the thing, the specific thing about Maggie was that she was, you know, her family. I think that you know the trial and the um, the the defense lawyer. One of the things they did was, you know, talk about her sort of down and out childhood, which she didn't really have. But what she did have, because she came from a family with you know a lot of siblings, and you know there was alcoholism. I wouldn't say it was really bad, but it was there was an unhealthy component. But there was also a lot of love. However, because of that sort of you know the unhealthy segments of anybody's childhood, she had a lot of you know sort of she was very strong willed, but she also had a lot of you know, concerns about self-worth like any young person. And the fact that she so respected this guy, and clearly he was a respected guy because he became teacher of the year. He, everyone defended him, you know, young women in his class. Nobody thought maybe she's telling the truth. But his wife knew. I know. I mean, and This is the crushing thing, yes. what women will do to other women to to keep their yeah. own relationships mm-hmm. that are rotten. Yeah, yeah. Intact in whatever yeah. way that yeah. looks like. Totally. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I've talked to a lot of people about is like, okay, so she has these three children. Does she want their father to go to jail for however long? You know, and that's something I, you know, I think about that a lot. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, what she did is, if she did what she did, what she did is legally and morally reprehensible. 
well, legally illegal, but morally reprehensible. But, you know, there's a, that's the complexity of humanity that she, you know, it's the father of her children. You know, is she going to sit there? And I do wonder about the relationship. I wonder what, I mean, I, there's nothing I wonder about more than what they talk about when they're alone. You know, that's to me like one of the most interesting things. Like, what does that look like? That's why you can also imagine these hollow, sad marriages Mm -hmm. where people have disgraced one another Mm -hmm. so badly that Mm -hmm. you can't move past it. And yet you're in, you're trapped Mm -hmm. within these walls because of what people will think Mm -hmm. and because your own hope for your life has been so crushed. Totally. Oh totally crushed. I know. <laughs> How are we going to make this upbeat for people? Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> you know, it's funny. No. I read, someone told me that my book gave them nightmares. And I was like, oh, God. And she was like, no, but it was good. I think what happened when I read it is that, yes, every woman you enter her experience and the parts that resonate with you mm-hmm. just illuminate they just go go it's like the book goes into your past and <laughs> it highlights all the things that have happened to you and having three different women's experiences i think a lot of people might be getting out of relationships after they read your book which i think could be a really positive yeah. thing there are two things that i always think about there's a woman in the uk who i met who's a writer uh, also and she um, she said that she gave the book to her friend who was in a similar to Lena situation. And she said, after she read it, she's like, I broke up with the man. I, you know, I stopped seeing him. I'm not going to do it anymore. And the other thing I think about is when Jessica Simpson was on a plane with her then husband, Nick Lachey, and she was watching The Notebook on the plane. And she was like, that is what I want. I don't have that right now. That was what made her want to leave. And I think that's the kind of thing that you know, is so good. Like you said, I just, yeah, I think that when things make us think it's okay, it's not, it's scary, but like we have to do it sometimes. And not being honest with yourself is the worst thing thing. because it will just chew up little parts of you and then you act in strange ways. You act angry and I can already feel it. All the things I need to get off my chest (laughs) now. Having written this book and having spent so much of your life immersed in these stories, what are you most hopeful about? I am most hopeful that, um, and one of the, the sort of aims I had, I think I say it in the prologue, but there was a young woman that I'm friends with in New York. I was in India and I started talking about Lena's story and the man that she was you know, chasing after. And my friend in New York was like, that's so pathetic. And I was so struck by that because I had done the same thing Lena did in different ways, but in almost the same ways too. And my friend had done the same thing, but in her, it was in New York City, it was under her. So when you take the sort of, when you peel the sort of specifics of the person away, you have the same story. And I said that to her and I mentioned the person that she had done it the most with. And she was kind of like, you know, a little bit taken aback, but also I think a little bit, I think she thought about it. And then my hope and the thing that I, you know, would really 
yeah, I would just like the most is to, for people, not just women and not just, you know, heterosexual women and not just, just all people who read the book to come away from it thinking that we are all united by our fears and our wants. And we should not judge other people. You know, we shouldn't judge them. And one of the things Lena says is like, don't judge me unless you've, you know, walked a mile in my shoes. It's terrible for me. And um, and that's something we do. And I think that, you know, if we get married or we're in relationships or we're happy, we then look down on our friends who call us up and say, you know, like this guy, whatever. And then we forget the times that we did that with people. And we, you know, we're like picking out, you know, new computers or new paint or whatever. And we're like, oh, this stuff is, you know, I'm like, I'm not, I'm over that. And it's like, no, you're not. You, you know, like we need to remain closer to, to just, to just our, our, our past so that we can not judge other people's. That's my hope. There are so many takeaways from this conversation. I think maybe the least sexy one is that as a woman or anyone, I think it's important to always have enough money to leave a bad relationship. So I think they, you know, it's called the fuck off fund, excuse my language, the F off fund, but I'm doubling down on mine so I can leave if anyone ever treats me badly or I'm in a bad situation. So everyone out there, get that F off fund going. Uh, Let me know what you think. I'm sure it stirred up other emotions as well. So do get in touch at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.